Let us pray. Almost gracious God, once more, fill us with your spirit. Cause us to know you more deeply. Cause us in this time of Advent, this time of preparation, to prepare for the coming of the Lord. To prepare for the coming of Jesus to us through word and sacrament. And ultimately prepare for his return to fully establish and consummate his kingdom upon this earth. Guide us evermore toward that day that we would more fully know you through Jesus our Lord. Amen. There we go. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's the Sunday that we step back and we reflect on the theme of love in so many ways as part of our scripture readings. One of the unique things about Advent that I find every year is that tension, that balance that we have between this being a season of preparation, a season that looks toward repentance, that, ref that is a reflective season, much like Lent is a reflective season of fasting and repentance. Advent has that same theme of preparation and repentance, of preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord. But then, alongside all of that is these candles. These candles of hope, peace, joy, and love. These high and mighty themes of Scripture that lift our eyes from the ground more fully toward heaven because all of that comes from God to us. We can have hope because of who God is and His promises. We can have peace because of what God is going to accomplish by His promises. We can have joy because the Lord has come to be with us. And we have the love of God because He truly did come in Jesus. He was truly incarnate. And so we have these wonderful themes alongside this call to repentance. And that it reminds us, I think, that repentance isn't merely about groveling. That it's not even merely, it's not really about groveling. It's not about beating yourself up. It's not about tearing yourself down and acting as though you're worthless. Repentance in the biblical sense, in the sense of what we are called to do here with preparation, is a humbling of oneself. It's a recognition of one's unworthiness to come before a king. That's probably something that's been kind of lost in our culture where we've tried to kind of level the ground, level the ground between everyone and everything to where there's no distinctions, no hierarchies, no differences between one person and the next, that we don't really have to show respect or humbleness or anything before other people because we're all perfectly equal in that way. But yet we're not all equal in our abilities. And so in that regard, there is a sense of giving respect to someone who has a greater ability than you in another area, who can be an expert in a different area of life than you are. And so we can still maintain some recognition, I think, because we do generally, when we look at our doctors, we say we, we honor them in some way and acknowledge that they are doctors. We don't just call them by their first name when we're in the office with them. We call them Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Aiken, Dr. Thomason. We 
give them that honor. We do the same in courts of justice. We do the same with our police officers. We do, we do have a recognition, but I don't think we quite grasp it in the same way that we used to with that sense of repentance and unworthiness when it comes to being in the presence of some people. That we carry it too far in the past of unworthiness equaling worthlessness. Unworthiness just means I don't have a right to be here. I have done nothing to earn this presence, to earn this visitation, to earn being with someone. That's what our, we mean by unworthiness. And all of that is wrapped up in this season of Advent, in this season of recognizing hope, peace, joy, and love. As we look forward to the coming of the King, the coming of Jesus, we think about the advent of love this day, the coming of love into this world in a physical, visceral, manifest way. But it all begins, in many ways, of course, with a prophecy from the Old Testament. Everything begins in the Old Testament and everything is revealed in the New Testament for us. The new is hidden in the old and the old is revealed in the new, as the church fathers would say. And so we're drawn back to 2 Samuel, to a history of David, to David having established his reign over the kingdom of Israel. We don't know at what point chapter 7 happens in David's reign. We know that the Hebrews in writing their histories aren't always perfectly chronological in the way that they organize things. And so we're not 100% sure because right after this chapter, we have a bunch of stuff about David going to war and fighting and gaining victories, whereas in chapter 7, it talks about him having rest from many wars, having cut off all the enemies. Not that there wouldn't still be some fighting, some defenses that would have to go on after such a cutting off of enemies, but that there seems to be a bit more of a finality here than what we see in chapter 8. So this may be something that happens after chapter 8 here, where it talks about David going to defeat the Philistines and all the other various peoples. But here, David is settled. He's been given rest. And he looks to his prophet, to the prophet Nathan, and says, I dwell in this wonderful house of cedar, this palace that I have built. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David didn't quite say right there, so I want to build a great and glorious temple. I mean, that's the fun part in Hebrew is that the word for palace, house, and temple is all the same word. They don't distinguish between them. It's just context there. And so David says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but God dwells in a tent. God doesn't have a house. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And he said, go and tell my servant David, would you build me a house to dwell in? Would you build me a house? And of course, the answer is, well, no. It's written that way. To give that negative response, no, I wouldn't build you a house. And the Lord explains why he doesn't need a house. He says, I have not lived in a house since I brought the people up from Egypt. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Did I ever ask any of the judges of Israel, why have you not built me a house? The reasons that are explained here is simply that God has always dwelt in a tent. He has never asked for a house. He's not angry at David for wanting to bring this honor. He's not upset. He's just simply stating the fact of, 
This is not something I have requested. This is not something that is necessary. But I took you, David, from the pasture to be a prince over my people. And I have been with you everywhere and have cut off your enemies. And there at the end of verse 9, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God is promising that he is going to create peace. He's going to make David's name great amongst all the people. And he's going to create a world of peace for Israel. A place where they can dwell and not be disturbed, where no more violent men will afflict them. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord here promises that he's going to build a house. That the Lord is building a house for David. But it's not a house made of wood or metal or steel or cloth. It's a dynastic house. It's a house of children, of sons who will reign over Israel, who will be kings and lead the people of Israel forward through this world. The Lord says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here God promises the building of a house for David, that he will have a son who will build a house for Yahweh, and that son's throne will be established forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And then he goes on to say, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There in those verses, we have that repetition of forever three times. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God is building a house that will last forever. And we, if we know our biblical history, know that Solomon... The king of peace, the prince of peace, came and became king after David. His son reigned, and he had a glorious reign, and he built a beautiful temple for the Lord. And yet, Solomon turned from the Lord. He gave way to idolatry. Even though he had built a glorious and splendid house for, the, for Yahweh, he, Solomon, turned toward idolatry. And because of that idolatry, most of the kingdom was ripped from the children of David. The rod of men disciplined the children of David for the sins of Solomon. And from then on, the kingdom that David's children reigned over was but just a small parcel of the land that Yahweh had promised to the children of Israel. And there was a northern kingdom who had various kings who were all wicked. None of them were godly kings. But thankfully, because of the Lord's steadfast love over the house of David, there were good kings in Judah. Not all the kings were good. They had lots of bad kings. And ultimately, those bad kings led to the destruction and downfall of Judah. 
the burning down and destruction of Jerusalem and the total destruction of the house that Solomon built for the Lord. And so what do we make of this prophecy? The throne was lost. The house was destroyed. Do we assume that this prophecy has been completely fulfilled in that moment up until then and then the prophecy has been lost? I don't think so. Because as with so many prophecies in the Bible, there are multiple ways that they get fulfilled. That yes, the immediate fulfillment of this when he says, your son will build me a house and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It had an immediate fulfillment in Solomon. Solomon was a great king. As I said, he was the king of peace over Israel. They had peace during his reign. He built a house for the Lord, but that isn't the ultimate house that God had in mind. That though David wanted to build a house for God and his son ultimately would build a physical house, God instead built a house for David that would last forever. And that through that, God built for himself an earthly house that would live forever and bring eternal life and peace to his people. I love how God does that. He looks at David and says, you won't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And through that act of building David a house, God actually builds a true earthly dwelling for himself. For out of David comes Jesus himself. The true God and true humanity. The one in whom God truly lives and is fully manifest. And through giving David a house, God assured that he would have a true earthly temple, a human temple named Jesus. And that God would maintain that house of Jesus as the temple. He would be the true temple, as he says in John 2, tear this temple down in three days, I will raise it up. God will raise it up. That God was planning on building a true temple for himself through the son of David who would ultimately come from his flesh, from his body. Though it was 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years after this prophecy to David from Nathan. That though David wanted to build a house, God would maintain David's house. And that he would reveal the true temple of God. And here we see that in Luke chapter 1. And the coming to Mary, the revealing of that house that God has maintained for generations hidden beneath the surface as the throne was lost in the destruction of Jerusalem. Yet David's line went on quietly underneath the surface, his offspring spreading out and being in different places to such a point that some assume that Mary probably was also of David's line. One of Joseph's distant cousins from after all, when you go nearly 2,000 years, there's a lot of room to spread out there and to not be too closely related anymore, but yet to still have the same ancestor. And so Gabriel comes to Mary to reveal to her what the Lord is going to do through her and in her. He comes to her and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Older translations used to say, Greetings, you are full of grace. The Lord is with you. We don't want to misunderstand that. Mary is full of grace because God has given her grace 
God has given her his favor, his love in a unique way. And this shouldn't upset us. After all, throughout the Old Testament, there are those prophets, those kings who had the unique presence, the unique favor of God. David being one of them. Moses being one of them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all these prophets in a way had the special favor of the Lord upon them to lead and guide them in the calling that he had given to them. He called them to a special place and he drew near to them in a special way in order to push them and to guide them through those times. And here, Gabriel acknowledges Mary, the virgin, to be a favored one, that the Lord is with her. But this young lady, she is troubled. She doesn't know what to make of this being called a favored one and being told that the Lord is with her. And Gabriel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God has poured his favor upon you. And because he has poured his favor upon you, he is giving you a great and high calling in this moment to conceive in your womb and bear a son that you will call Jesus, that you will call Joshua, that you will call Yeshua. Because Jesus is just but the Greek rendering of that Hebrew name, Yeshua, that we often think of as Joshua. It's all the same name in different languages. But we embrace the Greek name for Jesus. It all means Yahweh is salvation. That Yahweh is coming to save his people. And Gabriel continues and says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Here, God reveals the house to Mary and to the rest of the world in the coming years. That he has built a house for David. And through building a house for David, God has built himself an earthly house to dwell in. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High. The king who has David's throne, who will reign over Jacob and ultimately over all the world forever and ever. And Mary says, how, how will this be? I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. I'm not married. How can I conceive a child if I've never been with a man before? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Gabriel reveals to Mary the way of God's working. That though she has not known a man, though this child cannot come about under her own power, under her own actions, this child will still come about because the Holy Spirit will come to her, and the power of the Most High will overshadow her and Cause her to conceive a child. To conceive not just any child, but a son who is the son of God that will be called holy, set apart, different from everyone else because he is not just son of God as an honorific title, but he is the eternal, literal, true son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity coming down to be united to flesh to take on a tent that is permanent for himself forever and ever, to dwell amongst his people. God reveals the house that he has built for himself, and his name is Jesus. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. As we've been reading through 
Isaiah in the evenings. It's wonderful how many times Yahweh makes the promise that the barren will be more blessed than the one who has children because God will give to the barren more children in a name that will never be forgotten. And here we're reminded of that, that echo there of the one who was barren of all the women of the Old Testament who had been barren that the Lord then brought children to. And here we see God beginning to fulfill all of those promises in Isaiah about the barren having children in abundance right here with Elizabeth. And of course, God then concludes all of that in revealing of the house that nothing will be impossible for God. In one of my commentaries that I was reading, it translated that verse along the lines of, for the word, the, the, for the word of God will not return without accomplishing what it says. I thought that was a pretty good translation. That's a pretty unique way of saying it, that if nothing is impossible for God, then everything that God says will be accomplished. And here, this will be accomplished, that Mary will become the one who carries Jesus in her womb. She is the one who bears the true temple into this world. And how does Mary respond to all of this? She just simply says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She submits to what the Lord has promised to do. She submits to this strange story, this strange promise, this strange action of God that will in some ways ostracize her from the rest of the town. That though, yes, she is betrothed, she, in essence, has a husband that she has not known and has not consummated a marriage with, but nonetheless she will be seen as one who has become pregnant. What does that mean? Well, how will the people understand that? She doesn't worry about it because she has believed what Gabriel said of her, that she is a favored one, that the Lord is with her, that she has found favor with God. And so she can receive this hard calling from God because she knows that he has come to be with her. Now, somehow, mysteriously, this child that he is going to cause her to conceive and carry for the next nine months will somehow be holy, will somehow be the Messiah, will somehow be the one who will save the people of Israel. She doesn't know all the ins and outs of it. She doesn't understand everything that is to come, but she does understand that God is doing a work that he has promised for years and years and years to do, and so she submits to it. Let it be to me according to your word, she says to Gabriel, and ultimately, let it be to me according to God's word toward me. Oh, to rest in that kind of quiet faith, to simply walk through this world in dependence on the grace that you have been told you have, to know that the revealing of this house means that the Lord is with you, that as Jesus has been revealed as the true temple of God, we can truly know that God is with us, for that is the name that the angel gives to him in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That God is with his people, and he is with them in a true and unique way now in Jesus. He dwells with us as a human. He became a creature and yet is the creator. And he stands alongside us and walks alongside us and is with us. And here Mary is accorded that special gift of carrying him in her own body for nine months to give birth to him 
And we think, how can anyone have a more intimate, more close relationship to Jesus than his own mother? And yet, all of us, we who are people of Jesus, have an even deeper relationship than that of Mary, his mother, and the caring of him in her womb. He has come to indwell each and every one of us through baptism and faith, through the eating of this supper of bread and wine that is his body and blood. He dwells within us and unites himself to us. And he absolutely has done that with Mary. Ultimately, she has been united to him as well into a deeper bond than even motherhood could be in carrying him in her womb. We have all been given a deeper union, a connection to Jesus that we cannot fathom. And in the revealing of the house that is Jesus, we too become that house. We become the dwelling place of God for Jesus dwells in us. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts and to turn us into the temple as well. Because it's true of Jesus that he is the true temple of God and thus we in turn united to him become part of that temple, become living stones stacked up to create a great and glorious temple and dwelling place of God himself. Jesus is the true and original temple and we are part of that temple in union with him. And Jesus dwells with us and has revealed that we are a part of the great house that he has built, that his father has built. And so David wanted to build a house for God. Isn't it glorious what God will do? Isn't it glorious how he will take an idea that we have and turn it into something so much greater and grander than we could ever imagine that we come up with something, but it turns out God had a greater and bigger plan in mind. It's like with the original creation that what we end up with after Jesus returned and the renewal of creation is ever greater and more glorious than what we could ever imagine the glories of Eden being. And here David wanted to build a glorious house for God, but instead God built a more glorious house than David could ever imagine by uniting all of his people together to become that house by making not a house of wood, but a house of flesh and blood for himself that lives forever and reigns forever and brings eternal life and peace to all of us by uniting himself to us in human flesh and through the Spirit. We have become that very house that is Jesus too. And that is the love of God revealed to us this day that he takes David's dream of a house for God and builds it into something more glorious, more beautiful, more lasting than we could ever fathom. That we are granted but a drop of the, in the bucket of what the gloriousness of being God's temple truly is in this life. But in the life to come, in the life and the fullness of eternal life, we will know all of that in Jesus. In the new creation, we will know all of what it means to be the temple of God. But for now, know this, you are the temple of God because Jesus is the temple of God, because he is the true house that God desired to have. And he brought about in order to save his people, in order to unite himself to his people and to make them into a new and glorious people who will reign and live with him for all of eternity. And so trust in this same man, Jesus, who is the temple, who is the true house of the living God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.